Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello, and welcome to the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I'm joined here today with Michael Chang. Uh, Michael is the podcast host of STR Like the Best and co-founder of Trust B&B Vacation Rentals. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Jamie, thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your work in the podcast, so it's an honor to join you today. Yeah, and uh, likewise. So been following along with your story for, for years, hearing you on different podcasts and and seeing you in different places throughout and the industry, really want to dive in. And there's a few different things that, and looking at your history that I maybe wanted to start in. And one was your history as an investment banker, uh, both with uh, Bank of America and Jefferies. Funny enough, my introduction to AirDNA back in, it's got to be the, and it was like early 2015, was the internet analyst or the hotel analyst at Bank of America, really? uh, Sean Kelly, uh, giving me a call of saying, Jamie, there's this company called AirDNA that started tracking all the data that you want to know. You've got to give Scott Shafford a call. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was my introduction from Bank of America. But maybe just tell us about how you got started in the industry sort of as and in that investment banking world, and then what brought you into short-term rentals? Yeah, that, that's a. Uh, it's been a great journey. Uh, you know, looking back on our journey starting seven years ago, uh, we have 31 units that we own and manage across two locations here in the U.S. And how we started was, I was in my investment banking job here in New York, and I was working like 100-hour weeks, right? Typical investment banking job high-level professional services, and my wife and I looked at us, looked at each other, and we were like, how are we going to start a family if you're always on the road, and whenever you're here, you're, all you're doing is working? Like, we have to figure something out. And this was like a 2016 conversation. We looked at a bunch of different businesses, and you know, we kind of fell backwards into short-term rentals, I would say. We found this concept. We started with one unit here in New York and you know, been able to grow and scale this business. So really thankful for finding it early and having the resources with the investment banking background and the data that we were able to, to leverage from AirDNA and others to be able to build this business. Yeah. So take me back to the beginning. How do you guys get going? Like, and you think about our listeners here, it's typically either zero, one, two, three properties. Got it. It's getting going <laughs> and looking to figure out how to scale the business. I know you guys operate a combination of both owned and arbitrage or managed properties. So how'd you guys get going? How did it evolve? Yeah. Uh, so funny enough, my my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, her dad owned a long-term rental in New York and one of the tenants moved out. We were looking at the business model and it was like, okay, the person moved out in December. We're like, well, it's going to be pretty hard to rent a, rent, a, rent a place out in the winter. Why don't we just try Airbnb, right? Uh, it was a nominal, it's probably like eight, $10,000 investment back in late 16 and we're like, well, if it doesn't work, we can always, you know, it's a $10,000 investment, you know, at least we tried. And now, you know, we were both still working full-time jobs. So we talked, we kind of convinced her dad to like, okay, well, let us rent it. We'll make sure we take care of it. And, you know, we rented out the apartment. We, we made it an Airbnb. We put it on, we put it on Airbnb. And a few months later, you know, we're looking at the numbers like, wow, there's just something really here. That's really interesting. Something that I've never really seen before in my investment banking career, I've seen a lot of businesses and the fact that, you know, 
it cash flows so much, especially it was a low season time here in New York. Like, wow, like imagine during the summer, right? And that was like, that was a light bulb moment in March when, you know, the rent was $2,500. We were getting like 10K of gross revenue. And so we were profiting like 5K for that one apartment. We're like, okay, like this, like this is crazy. <laughs> uh, and we had read about it, but you know, you know, when you read about something versus like seeing the bank, the money in your bank account is two very, very different things. So that, you know, and then, you know, my wife quit her job, started working on the business and then I joined her two years later. Yeah. So around that time, 2015, 2016, it seemed like the regulation landscape in New York was really changing too. So felt like every year there was a new ban on short-term rentals <laughs> in New York when they were, they were already pretty much illegal in, in certain types of units. I see you not operating in New York anymore. So how'd you guys go about sort of expanding and picking the markets that you were going to expand to and ultimately I mean, it looks like leaving the new york market yeah like regulations are really important right this is 2016 there were still you know things are a lot different now with the new legislation just the evolution of the market over the last seven years when we first started it was just it was a very different market environment and like it was close i was also very close to where we lived we knew the landlord right so it was kind of an easy way to get started but to your point you know regulations are even more critical now. So, you know, that's why we have moved our operations to Tennessee, to Pennsylvania, and where we really understand the regulations, we have kind of all our ducks in a row there. So, you know, it's kind of the, I, I, you know, I would say just the maturation of ourselves as business owners and as the market has continued to professionalize. And there's just better data out there really, you know, now the jurisdictions actually lay out the regulations in a lot more, you know, user-friendly way. So I, I think just the market continues to evolve, continues to professionalize, and we as owners, operators have to continue along with that. Yeah. So you, you said you like to look at the data. You like to be very data-driven. So what were the data points you were looking at when you were figuring out what markets you wanted to uh, go into? So I say at the beginning was, um, you know, we, we, it was really more of like, we just asked around what people were doing and then, you know, data really wasn't that good back then. I can't really don't really remember what 2016, how we looked at it. Um, if we were at that really, you know, we, we were, we really sharpened our pencils, but we had talked to a lot of operators who are operating in New York, like, okay, well, I think we, I think this will work here. And then, you know, but it was, again, it was a small kind of nominal investment, but as we continue to scale the business, really start relying on, on data services like AirDNA and some of the other competitors, we went out and, you know, I, so that was when we were like, okay, let's really scale this business. So I built out my models from my investment banking background, really understood data, data analytics and like what really drove the business. And, you know, for us, it was, what's, what's revenue, right? Revenue was the most important thing. You know, ADR, average daily rate, occupancy rate. Those are the three key metrics we always looked at. And, you know, it was nice to have something that we own, that, that we operated as well, because we could kind of compare the data. So we, you know, we, we compared data providers versus our actual data and you know we would always kind of keep cross che cross checking so then you know we landed on you know what methodology that really worked for us and that's really helped us scale the business right so you know we have rental arbitrage units which we rent and then re-rent with the landlord's permission so you really have to make sure your numbers are tight right because we have to pay that rent every single month so we had to really make sure our underwriting was tight and you know we, we started with that approach and then that allowed us to really dial in our our internal models so that when we went to go buy, we had even more confidence that what we were looking at was at least directionally correct that we could put into capital to continue to grow that. So 
you know, we own six in Tennessee, and then we have 25 rental arbitrage units in Philadelphia. So that's how we've been able to grow the business. Yeah. And is that purposeful in terms of the types of markets that you're sort of going into? And in Tennessee, very much a vacation rental market. I'm Philly, Pennsylvania, very much a sort of urban operating market where is that sort of purposeful in how you're sort of going about those two markets? Like, is there ownership opportunity in, in Philly? Is there arbitrage opportunity in Tennessee? Or is and you very much trying to keep the two different strategies separate? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think as a now as a professional real estate investor, just making sure that we have different arrows in our quiver, right? So as the market changes, you know, we can attack the opportunity, take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. So, you know, we're, we're really good at arbitrage, really good at buying, right? So in, um, where we want to buy are in traditional vacation rental markets, right? Like Tennessee, uh, like the Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, all right? The, the, there, the rules don't really change. The entire economy there is predicated on tourism and short-term rentals, right? It, you know, I always like to say, like, if they ban short-term rentals there, you know, all those, all those politicians are going to get kicked out of office, right? Because people aren't going to eat. Right. So, you know, that's your protection there. Philadelphia, Northeast markets, blue state markets are different. Regulations continue to change. So we have to just make sure that we're in commercial zones, that we have, you know, we have all our ducks in a row there. But there is a barrier of entry there. So the supply is such a, a lot is it, capped there. Right. So, you know, we, we play these two different strategies together where if we can get favorable rents and uh, owners that we like working with in Philadelphia, we, we grow that business. And a business cash flow is actually very, 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 very well. And we take those profits and we go and buy more properties, right? And what really glues all this together is, is two things, right? One, the operations. The more, the bigger we get, the more professional we can be, the, the, the better tooling, the infrastructure, the, the operations gets that much tighter. And two, on the data side, like we really, like now we have six units and six cabins in Tennessee, for example, right? Like I double check against all the numbers. So I have a really good sense on what layouts, what locations, what kind of revenue it does. So it just makes me a much better investor. And then I have, and, and I also have my data in, in, in Philadelphia as well. So it all kind of like layers onto each other, uh, which really has helped us grow and, and grow in a very durable way. Like we don't really want to grow to hundred units like in a year, right? That doesn't make any sense because we're taking on too much risk. Like I have two kids, like this is our full-time jobs. Like we depend on this business. So we really very much are very purposeful. And that's why we really look at data because that is, it will enable us to make good decisions so that we're not risking, like we're taking good risks, right? We don't want to take bad risks. Um, so there, there's, there's a difference there, especially when the, the market has evolved too. I think it's just more and more important to make sure that, you know, you really understand both your upside and your downside cases. Yeah. And, and it, it's so interesting in looking at different paths of I mean, companies that started around that sort of 2016, 2017 time. Like I think you know, back to uh, another investment banker at Bank of America. Did you know Jay Roberts there? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. I invested, I invested in Domeo. So I know I very much know <laughs> I, I, have the, I have the, I have the tax write off to, uh, to, uh, to, to prove it. But, but you look at the two different I'm sort of paths of, I'm looking to scale very quickly, uh, obviously going in with the rental arbitrage model as well. And obviously some bad luck with COVID and some operational um, issues. But can you talk some about the sort of longevity of sort of building <laughs> uh, a business sort of slow, uh, purposeful versus I'm sort of trying to scale sort of in unit counts and get as big as possible, go across multiple markets like it seems like you're building I an mean, operationally a, a, 
in a functional business and focus on a couple markets and that that's been a great way for for your business to grow. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And the way that I, you know, for kind of investors here on that's listening to this, you know, I really think Airbnbs actually uh, are much more of a private equity model versus a venture model. And what I mean by that is, you know, where you speak of Jay Roberts and Domeo and more recently with Front Desk uh, declaring bankruptcy, these operators operate on a venture, more of a venture mindset, which is growth. They really prioritize growth over profitability. And when you look at it from a private equity perspective, they generally focus on profitability over growth. So I really think this business model really, really depends on how profitable your properties are going to be because it actually lends itself to scale, diseconomies of scale, not economies of scale. Because when you're too broad across too many different markets, it's just, this is a very blocking and tackling business, right? Your cleaning, your operations are really, really critical. And it's just really, really hard to be spread across 50 different markets, five units in this building, five units in that building. It doesn't lend itself that way. What really works, and at least in my view, what creates a very durable business model is scale within certain geographies, like really scale, really dial in your operations there and get profitable as quickly as you can. Because that ultimately is going to give you staying power. So when you have an issue like COVID, right, which obviously was kind of scary, but if you look back, it was really like a three-month phenomenon, actually. It wasn't that long, but these business models were so levered that they couldn't survive, you know, Stay Alfred, Domeo, others, they couldn't survive three months of volatility, right? Whereas we could, right, because we built our business model that way. And to be fair, COVID was the biggest tailwind this industry has ever encountered, both from an ADR, because the inflation grew ADR, grew, you know, occup- you know obviously work from home grew occupancy. And if you own property for 2020, you know, you've seen your equity, you know, you've seen prices for, for vacation homes double, triple, you know, depending on the market. So that's where I think, you know, creating a durable business model is critical to long-term success in this business. And growth for the sake of growth really is going to come back and bite you in the butt um, when you have, if you can't encounter, if you can't sit through like a few months of volatility, that's not a good business model in my view. No, and, and absolutely. And and you, you mentioned operations and I, I want to touch on that for a bit of sort of how you sort of built your teams and also maybe differentiate between what your teams look like in a market like Tennessee and and in in Philly, sort of the urban versus vacation rental market. So, how did you structure it? How did you build it? What do you think the most important pieces of it are? Well, you know, what I always tell students that work with us is like, your your cleaners are the most important person. Treat them as a partner. Never treat them as a vendor. So, we have a team in Philadelphia that we've been working we've been working with since 2019. Our first units there, the exact same team. They. They're, they're with us, they're invested with us, they really know our properties, and they really function as the property managers out there, right? You want your cleaners to be the property managers in your unit. So they take care of everything, right? We They take care of all the logistics, right? And they have ownership of that really because we are a substantial part of their business. So they really, really care. In Tennessee, actually kind of the same thing. We, we found a person, she's a single mother, and she had a, she was working for a cleaning company and they didn't really get along. You know, we met her and then she was like, well, I clean your units. If you want me to take one, I can do it. We didn't really trust someone like that in the beginning. So, you know, it took a year really to, to, to really get to know her, but now she runs everything. And 
you know, well, really cool part of this business is, you know, you, if you empower like these solo entrepreneurs, especially women, people of color, like they really, you know, that's a demographic you're working with here and you really can provide them some economic opportunities they actually would not have access to. And they reward you with that with loyalty, right? Like, so these people have been with us for like four years, which cleaning and short-term rentals is a lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really helped us own our operations. Now on the customer service side, we outsource all of it to overseas. Mm -hmm. And these people, again, have been with us since 2018 <laughs> as well. So, you know, we really, we really treat our people as you know part of us, right? We they survived COVID with us. We reward them, and they really they run the entire business. I spend very hour a week, maybe, uh, actually on the operation side. They run everything. So that's I think if you want to scale a business, just have people that will stay with you, treat them well, and they're going to be the people there that's going to look after your business when you're not there on the ground. Especially if you manage remotely, like myself, I live in New York. Everything else is in you know in different states. Yeah. Um, so that's a really key. So an hour a week, tons of units that you have now operating. What are some of the other tools that you sort of use to sort of automate the the operations outside of sort of customer service and cleaning? Yeah, we like so we, we use a PMS system. I would say you know your property management system and your accounting system. Uh, your property management system we use. Uh, a third party called Hostaway that we've used now since 2018. Before then, we used a company called Uplisting. So, you know, Uplisting really helped us when we were sub five units to really help us grow and learn the software. And as we grew, we kind of outgrew. This is 2019, so the software has changed now, but we outgrew those capabilities to using a, a bit more, something that was more robust that was Hostaway. And on the accounting side, actually, the, the data is actually really important here, too. I want to overemphasize, I am going to overemphasize this. Like, if you have one or two units, make sure you have real accounting, like get QuickBooks, make sure you are, you know, accounting your revenue and expenses correctly. What's really helped us grow too is that we know how much money we actually make per month. Like we're not relying on looking at a bank account saying, oh, this, we're, we have more money than we did last month. So we're profitable. Like that's not how you, a lot of people do that, but that's not how you scale a business. Like we, we know to a T how much revenue comes in from which channels, what's, you know, what's our cleaning costs, everything, right? Like we've had that since 2018. So I can always look back in a very easy way, like, okay, how did we do last year versus this year for this unit? And it's all comparable because what you don't want to do is like, oh, I wonder if this, if this unit's profitable or not. And you spend two days and you're like jerry-rigging everything together because one, it takes you too long to make a decision. Two, your results aren't comparable when you look at a different, when you look at a different unit because you're just, you know, creating a new process every single time. So from a data side, right, like, you know, and I know in this conversation, like your QuickBooks, your accounting is really important and making sure you're, as you're looking for new units, like your gross revenue is really important. And with our accounting system, we know exactly what our gross revenue is. And when we compare, like I do every single month, or someone on our team does every single month, we'll compare what AirDNA has for us versus what we're doing trailing 12 months. And then we're like, okay, well, this is what it is. And then we use that for our competitor analysis too, to make sure that we're getting the right market share that we're you know, we're charging the right amount, we're getting the right occupancy compared to our competitors. So that's where like all this data stuff really ties together, which has helped us scale and not make mistakes, right? Like, Cause this is our money, right? We're not, this isn't investor money. Like we're the investors here. Um, so we really care about making money and not losing. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with two young kids, right? Especially with a two month old, a two year old and a three month old, we, we, we durability, you know, we want to we want a growth curve that looks like this, right? We don't want this. Like maybe, yeah, that that's really that's really really important to us. So two young kids, lots of units, multiple markets, and also a podcast. 
Uh, it sounds like you also do some sort of education for hosts. So what was the emphasis of that, of like getting into sort of helping others? Yeah. I mean, you know, we wanted to kind of tell our story too. Um, people were kind of, our friends would ask us, Hey, what are you guys doing here? They saw we both quit our jobs and working on this. So, you know, we just got a lot of questions on the journey, how to get started. So we're like, Oh, why don't we kind of share our personal journey and let people know, right? Because what you see a lot of online is, you know, people that maybe haven't been in a business that long or, you know, you know, use the money to go buy a flashy car or flashy something, right? For us, like we, we look at it very differently where we're wanting to buy more houses and like support our family. So it was just a different way of looking at the business that we wanted to share. And we got really good feedback, right? People like, Hey, yeah, I'm married. I have kids. I, you know, maybe want to get into my job or create some separate income. How do I do this? Mm -hmm. So we were coaching you on the side. We're like, well, why don't we actually just formalize this? And we saw what others were doing, especially on rental arbitrage. A lot of people were kind of teaching rental arbitrage, um, but we felt we had a way that was data driven, that was very durable, that was battle tested. They were like, well, what, you know, if people are showing, if, if other educators are showing people how to do the strategy, like let's actually just like show people what we're doing. And because we thought, we thought it was a superior way of executing this business strategy. So we did. Um, we just, you know, I, I, I hate people like spending a lot of time, money, effort, mind share on starting a business. And I just felt like it was a better way of the way that we would teach it would be a better, more durable way. Yeah. That's why we started. Oh, that's great. And with the podcast, sort of what do you guys try to do on it? Like, is it essentially a, an arm of that coaching? Is it, is it interviews? Like, what is it? Yeah, no, it's it's nothing to do with the coaching. Actually, we never even talk about it on there. What what we actually all we do on there is invite guests that have that are either STR investor, short term investor, or operator, and we just ask their story. Like, how do you, I think a lot of it? You know, people are like, "Wow, it's must have been really." You have thirty one units now, or you have this many units now. Like, how could I ever get there? And all, we always want to share like how everyone started, right? Like, we just said recently on a host, he has like three hundred plus units, and how he started was. You know, in late 20, it was uh, early 2021, him and his wife, they were also in Philly. They would, he worked an overnight shift and him and his wife would just go, they got one unit and they would just, they would clean it themselves. They would do everything themselves. And that's how they got started, right? With that one unit and then two and then four and then, you know, and, 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 and that progresses. But I think what gets lost is like, how do you actually get started here? Right. And if you're listening with like zero, one, two, three units, it takes work, right? Like your first one's going to be hard because you need to learn how to do everything. But if you can cross that chasm, right, and get to get that one successful, it really builds on itself. So really like the taking action part, you know, going on your DNA or going to whatever data service you want and actually doing the research, understanding what you're looking at, right? There's plenty of resources online, uh, free resources online to go do that. Um, that. That's how you can really get started and limit your downside, right? Because the more work that you understand, that you do and understand the gross revenue of something that you're looking at, you're going to be that much more equipped to, to do this business model correctly. Instead of just asking your friend, Oh, Hey, Oh, I saw this person online making a lot of money. Let me just go do this. Like, no, you actually have to like do the work. <laughs> yeah. So I heard there are two tips for sort of new investors. One is, and sort of take the leap, sort of get going. You, you got to go from zero to one. Uh, and number two is when you're taking that le leap, limit the downside. So make sure that that you really dig into the data, really understand and what other units are doing and that you're going to be able to make it profitable when you make that leap. Is that sort of the the first two things you sort of tell people? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, crossing you know the Peter Thiel zero to one, right? Like you, you, yeah. you gotta you gotta take that first step, right? You gotta eventually. You can do all the research in the world, but until you get their first unit, it's all just you know an intellectual exercise. But yeah, like really understand, like you know, we use their so for example, we use their DNA two steps, right? One is we go and we'll look research a market, right? There's a lot of data on specific markets there. Look at the the trends on supply and demand. Look at ADR. Look at Revpar. Look at seasonality. Really understand like the flow of that market that you're looking at, right? And then two, then you go look at the actual property, right? And there's a very specific tools to do that and really understand what that property can make, right? That's the key thing to understand. Like, if you can figure out what a property can make, you can be wrong on some of the expense items, that's okay, right? But if you get that first part wrong, like, you're just you're just swimming against the tide the entire time you're doing this. So figure out, really understand what your comps are for the property that you're looking at, whether it's running arbitrage or buying, it doesn't really matter. And once you understand the gross revenue, right, you understand how much money that property can make, then you're going to be, that much, you're going to be ahead of 90% of anyone else in this game because you actually did that work. I mm-hmm. promise you. No one else does the work. So if you listening right now, like go on the free version or whatever, you know, whatever data source that you want to look at and just understand the gross revenue, understand the the market dynamics. If you can do that, your downside is going to be much more capped because like you actually really understand uh, what's going on there versus, you know, just guessing. We, we don't want to guess here, right? Like we want to really actually like take a look and understand what's my range on you know, it could do this or that, right? Versus like, ah, well, I think it could do this. <laughs> just, it, it, just it's, it's it's so true too. And we've actually been doing an internal exercise that all the employees at AirDNA of actually making everyone go to the work of like what, I mean, evaluating a market for seasonality, like uh, <laughs> occupancy ADR by month, I'm digging into properties in terms of comps and like then actually going in and estimating what a property would earn and like, that they would feel confident behind that number. And like, we went through the process like two hours of on just one property and you get to the end and everyone's like, I need more time. I need more time. Like two hours wasn't enough to like really dig in and, and using those tools to understand like it is work to really get to and confidence around a, what a property could earn. And like, especially if you're going to go about making the, a major investment decision around that property. Absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the weaknesses actually of of all the data providers out there. There's actually just so much good information out there. Like what's actually good, like what's really relevant. And it's hard to parse through that, right? It just takes time, experience to go do that. And that's where, like to your point, it takes two hours to go through and you still need more time. It does take time, but like, you know, what is actually really important? What's going to drive your analysis, I think that's where, at least for me, like where I think we really differentiate ourselves just because my background and like we've been doing this for so, so long, we really train ourselves and anyone that we're working with, like these, this is like what's actually, this is this is our methodology on what's worked for us and like really breaking down the constituent pieces and giving them the tools that they need, like the worksheets, because you need worksheets, you need models to actually put everything together. It's hard to export something from five years of data from AirDNA or anyone else, like, okay, well, this is, what does this actually mean? Like, how do I actually convert this into something that's usable for me? And I think that's where, you know, turning all that good data into an actual insights, one is very, very hard. And two, it's hard to systematize. You do need a person there that has some judgment based on experience uh, to give comfort to people. So I, I think that's where, you know, the challenge and the opportunity is, but it's there, right? You just have to 
and I kind of keep harping on this again, kind of just got to do the work. Yep. And that's something we're spending a lot of time on right now is like, yes, calculators are fun. They, they bring people in and, but in to really take it to that next level understanding, like we got to, we got to make that whole process easier. Right now, it's not easy. It's not easy to tell the good data from the bad or not necessarily the bad data, but just the data that I mean, isn't as relevant for that property, that analysis that you're doing and wanting to bring the, the good data to the forefront as much as possible. It's all, yeah, like it's all about context. Yeah. Like those calculators are, are cool and they're like, we don't like, we don't actually even offer it. People ask for our calculators. We don't give it actually because, you know, you're giving someone a tool they don't actually know how to use. And then what we want to avoid is actually giving people a false sense of security. Like, oh, well, great. Your calculator says it's 30% cash on cash. So like I should do it, right? And it's like, well, let's, let's maybe, let's dig, but let's dig in, right? <laughs> so I think that that's the, you know, we don't want to give people the fallacy of like, you know, or, or the false comfort that like something is right. Um, but it's a complex. It's a really complex problem that I'm glad you and others are are working on. What it does erode my competitive advantage a little bit. But I look at it. Look, the more people can, that can do this and and make affect a positive change in their lives, like it's fine. Like we have, we have enough of a head start. I'm not too worried about it. But if we can avoid bad investments, like all the better. Yeah. So I'm looking ahead. Like, where do you see the opportunities coming in the industry? Like, and what gets you excited about sort of the future and how things are evolving? Yeah. Um, you know, I think what's nice is a lot of the VC money has left, uh, this, they're going to different kind of like, you know, group bought kind of basically a group buy model, uh, which is great for us because that capital was kind of hurting us because people were just not being economic in their decision-making buying is tough, right? It's high rates. Housing prices really haven't fallen. Rates are still fairly high and revenue is less certain. So it's more difficult. We actually think a lot, a more opportunity on the rental arbitrage side, actually, because rents have come down and there's a lot more data in these urban urban environments where you can get a lot, you get a lot more comfort, a lot more precision on gross revenue. Mm -hmm. If you know your rent and your gross revenue, then that's the two most important variables in figuring out if a rental arbitrage business is, is going to be uh, profitable or not. So we're spending more time on rental arbitrage now because we just think that's where the profits are because these multifamily developers, they really need, they need you. They didn't need us the last three years. They need us now though. Yeah. So, and uh, there's we, a market opportunity here. Yeah. It was re record high uh, deliveries for new multifamily buildings. A lot of them on the higher luxury side. Yeah. I mean, the markets where vacancies are already now above <laughs> pre-pandemic levels. Like, yeah, vacancies got to sort of record lows during the pandemic anything that was available, people were renting sort of like short-term rentals, but now it's, it's sort of opening up and owners are looking for ways to and solve for more occupancies in their building, right? Yeah. That's some of the data that you guys have provided some of the other, um, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity right now because exactly your point, this is a record amount of supply that's coming up on multifamily in a lot of these big Sunbelt markets. So, you know, your, your Nashville, your Dallas, uh, Phoenix, you know, we can, we can kind of go down the list and they're not going to get their rent. So they're underwritten for, right? So how do they bridge the gap there? How do they, you know, they're, they're, they have a business issue they need to solve. And I believe that we have a solution to offer them. So, you know, it's just a, uh, we'll wait for the market, you know, we're just waiting for the market to come to us and it's already come. So again, we're going to do our, we're going to do our work. We're going to be very diligent. We're going to find the best units, right? Like, for example, we only take two bedrooms. We don't really take one bedroom, right? Because we, we don't want to compete, compete against the hotels, right? So 
just things like nuances like that that we've understood now through the last six years that help us. We may cap our upside, but our floor we try to bring our floor high as much as possible and have enough margin for error in there that if we're wrong, we could still be profitable. We don't want to be wrong and then you know be be in a bad situation again because we have two kids and this is our personal money. We're not we're not investing on an investor's behalf, right? Like this really matters to us. But but Michael, didn't hotels solve that problem by being able to guarantee adjoining rooms? <laughs> exactly, exactly. If you if you uh, if you believe that's a solution, then I have a bridge to sell you in Montana too. <laughs> no, absolutely. For I'm someone thinking about sort of going after rental arbitrage in some of these urban markets where, and it looks like there could be some opportunity in the, in, in the year or two ahead. And how do you suggest they sort of, sort of bridge that regulatory gap? Like, cause in the, in these type of markets are the ones with the biggest sort of re- regulatory hurdles. Exactly. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it used to be a lot harder. It's a lot easier now. Just go on ChatGPT, literally, right? Go on, make sure you're on 4.0 and short-term rentals, the city, short-term rental regulations, the city that you're interested in, and literally just read what they say, call the office, the city office, the county office, really understand the rules. Sometimes GPT is wrong. So just go and understand the rules and find where it's legal to do and follow the rules, pay the taxes. You're going to be fine. There's enough margin there for everyone to make money, right? So you know, a lot of it's just understanding the rules. And now with ChatGPT, it's so much easier actually to cut through all the noise. So start there, go on AirDNA or whatever, you know, data resource that you want, go on there and figure out what's the gross revenue, right? If you go on the gross revenue, it should give you a fairly strong range. Look what your rents are, right? You take your revenue you divided by rent. If it's two times, you're good. Go do it. If it's 1.75 to two times, then you really got to, dial in, right? If it's 2.25 or above, please call me because I'm like, I want to do that deal too. <laughs> that, like, that's it. I mean, it's not like, I, let's not overcomplicate. Like those are some rules of thumb that we figured out, right? Like if it's over two times, like you should be okay. Like mm-hmm. not every deal is going to work over two times, but you know, probability wise, like you'll do fine, right? If it's below 1.75 times, you know, you really, you better have some strategy there that's working for you because that generally doesn't work, right? So there's these things that you you just kind of like figure out by doing, and I would start there, right? It's not, you know, anyone can do division. You don't need a fancy calculator to do that. Just go on your phone and take one number, divide it by another one. If it's two, then do it. If not, then don't do it. And it, it, it does sound like a big part of your strategy is sort of reducing that downside risk of like, if it doesn't hit this threshold of like, not necessarily a threshold that I mean, has to be a home run, but where if things do sort of give you that cushion of, if I don't get the rate that I thought I was going to do, or we see a whole lot more supply come in and, and I see a reduction in sort of occupancy or ADR, there's a big piece of that sort of loss reduction yeah. risk aspect, right? Yeah. Because if we're wrong, if you're if you're two times you're wrong, it's 1.75, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. If you're 1.75 and you're wrong, it's 1.3, you're in trouble. Right. So like we just, we care about the mark, your margin of safety, right? Like, you know, cause fundamentally you're always going to be wrong. Like I know my numbers are, whatever I put on there, it's not going to be right. You know, everything is great, but like the number it puts on realize, I know it's wrong. It's not going to be, it's not going to hit that number exactly, but what's the range, right? Like what's the probability it's going to do 10% worse versus what's the probability it's going to do 10% better. Right. I, I think about that 
And if I'm, you know, really confident, like, ah, oh, well, it's 90% going to do better than that versus 10%, then, then I make my business decision based on that. But I never think I'm going to hit this exact number because this is never going to be right. Right. It it's just, actually you know, funny that, hit, go ahead. <laughs> that was the, uh, one of the findings coming out or one of the takeaways for the team, like we had 50 people sort of doing this analysis. They're like, well, what's the answer? And I'm like, there is no right answer. We're all, we're all wrong. Like we're all wrong. And <laughs> there's it's the range. Yeah. It's the it, range. And then it's, it's, range. The, it's the, it's your confidence level in that range. Like that's the most important thing. You got, you got to get me, you got to, you got to invite me to one of those trainings. I want to see how I do. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was so much fun in terms of getting to, I mean, we got an average, we got the mean, and then we got sort of a standard eight deviation. It was about 12% above and below of mm. what sort of everyone came into. And I was like, this is our range. Like there's some people that are going to outperform. There's some people that are going to perform. There's and sort of the expectation of like next year is going to be totally different than this past year. And the data is just a reflection of what happened over the past year that sort of goes into, I'm really getting not to an exact number, but like you said, or a range a of range, what to yeah. expect over the next, over the next 12 months. Right. Cause fundamentally we're, you're, you're trying to drive looking in the rear view mirror. Right. Like that's what we're doing. Cause you're looking at the last 12 months and then you have to make a decision. Like, how does that look in the future? You always know, can look at supply that you know, your market demand and you know, things of like that, but ultimately it's still a guess. And I think that's where, you know, just, you know, the data, it's not a crystal ball. It's a tool that you use. And, and also, you know, it's a lot of it's dependent on the operator too, right? Me versus someone else. We're going to get two different numbers. I've been doing it for six years. Someone's been doing it for six months. I probably will do better than them, right? I already have my super hose. I, I know how to do the markets. I know that I'm going to get more five-star, you know, ratings than this other person. Like, you know, so there's also that aspect too that, the oper you know, operationally, if you know how to do revenue management, right? If you really know how to use your price labs really, really well or, you know, any kind of data or any kind of pricing tool, you're going to do better than someone else that didn't, right? So again, there's a lot of variables in it. So again, just like build your range, right? Make sure that if you even hit your downside, you're still going to make money. And then like, that's going to give you durability. And that's how you're going to learn because you're always going to make mistakes. We still make mistakes, right? But just making sure your mistakes don't BK you and then you're going to be fine, right? Because then you're like, okay, well, I made mistakes on the first one. My second one's going to be better. My third one will be better. My fourth one. And then that's how you grow. Because if you crap out on the first one, you'll never get this, the chance to do a second or third. Yeah. Well, Michael, this conversation has been amazing. I love sort of geeking out on the data and uh, <laughs> uh, seeing, I, I assume we could we could talk for hours about this, but uh, we do have to wrap up. If listeners want to find your podcast, want to find I mean, where to find you, uh, how can they do that? Thanks for that. Um, my podcast is called STR Like the Best. So you can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Uh, the best place to find me is on Instagram. I answer all my DMs. So it's uh, Michael Chang BNB, M I C H A E L C H A N G BNB. So find me on there, send me a message. And I, we, we talk about our journey and how we do our work. You know, we believe in showing our work, right? Like, I'm going to tell you what we do. Like, we show you what we do. Um, and hopefully that can lead to people making better decisions for themselves. Awesome. Michael, well, thank you so much for joining. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I think I'll see you in Nashville, right? For the SDR Wealth Conference. I'll see you in three weeks. All right. <laughs> Sit next, Jamie. Appreciate the time. And uh, thank you for letting me on.